0: Thanks so much, Steve, and good morning, everyone. As Steve said, my name's Jake. I'm one of the other uh, curates here at St. Paul's. Before we come to our reading, I wanted to show you a picture. And uh, this is the moment I met our second daughter, Libby. Um, She arrived fairly dramatically, so it wasn't immediately after birth, but soon after. And it's um, one of my favorites. Now, I don't know what's going on in her brain as um, I looked on her none of us will remember I, I don't think you will um, what it was like to see for the first time but apparently it's pretty fuzzy um, even though she's looking at me a newborn baby's eyes are completely unaccustomed to the light and the color that uh, around them that comes around them and their eyes need to adjust and develop and that happens over the course of the first few months or even first year of their young lives so at two to three months Babies start to recognize faces, and they begin to distinguish different colors, different hues. At three to four months, babies can see a little bit further and gain a sense of depth. Babies at that stage might grab at moving things that you kind of swing in front of them, and they'll probably miss them most of the time, but that's the idea. And at 12 months, children can see as well as adults. So here in this photo, Libby is not seeing very much at all, uh, just a fuzzy version of my blubbering face but it was incredible for me to look um, and to see her little eyes uh, fixed on my face for the first time even just for a few seconds well john chapter 9 which we will have open before us over the next three sundays is all about sight a man born blind is given sight by jesus but he doesn't see everything straight away and there 's much more to the story than the miracle itself. there are all sorts of surprises, things we necessar- we won 't necessarily see coming and which catch us off guard it 's a long chapter um, and um, uh, which is written in a way that um, has sort of twists and, and turns as we follow it and um, we won 't see the full meaning um, as as we begin, but it takes time to read it and explore it. it is rich and it's deep and it's full of humor and irony and surprise things change and develop over time and so does our vision as we follow it together over the next three Sundays so as this first portion of of John chapter 9 is read um, even if it's familiar to you try and look a little bit closer note the surprises consider the symbols and the imagery. Think about what Jesus says and does, and why he says and does those things. We're going to hear a song now, um, asking for God to speak to us as we come to this passage, and to show us what we cannot see on our own. So can I invite the musicians up um, to sing um, this song, and then it's over to Fred
1: for the reading. This morning's Bible reading is taken from the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. Jesus heals a man born blind. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked him. He replied, the man they called Jesus, he made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Many thanks, Fred. Well, if you've been here with us over the last few weeks as we've um, ventured through John's Gospel, you'll remember that Jesus and his disciples are still in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, but as we've seen, Jesus' presence wasn't exactly welcome um, in, the, in the city, especially amongst the religious rulers. And so by this stage, the stage we're at in John 9, he'd already, already become a controversial figure especially drawing criticism from the elite. In fact, Jesus had caused such a stir that in chapter 8, verse 59, the the verse before our chapter, it says that people picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And then the scene changes, and we meet a new character. The man is not named. In fact, we never discover his name. But what we do know about him is that he's blind, not just colorblind, he's totally blind. It wasn't the result of an accident, he'd been blind from birth, verse one. He's never seen the light of day. Colors, faces, nature, nothing. He spent the whole, his whole life begging in the shadows, relying on the generosity of temple goers, Um, to see him through another day. Until one day, Jesus walks by, and Jesus sees him. Jesus sees the man who can't see. The man hasn't got a clue that Jesus is there. He hasn't got a clue that something life-altering might be about to take place. He's got nothing to offer Jesus. And yet Jesus sees him and is ready to do something for him. However, first, there's a surprise, an interruption. In verse 2, we discover that this isn't going to be another Jesus-sees-the-man-Jesus-heals-the-man story because the disciples who are accompanying Jesus see the man too. Yet they don't see the man the way that Jesus sees him. They see him as a case, a problem with an unresolved answer. And they use this opportunity to ask their teacher a question. Who sinned, they say? This man or his parents that he was born blind? In other words, who's to blame? It's a bit of an underhand question because it makes some pretty big assumptions. They assumed that he must be blind because of his or someone else's sins. So either he must have sinned, that would cause his blindness. I don't quite know how that worked, because he was blind from birth, but anyway. Or his parents must have done something wrong that caused him to be blind. Either way, it's cause and effect. It's bad karma. That's the way they saw it. By the way, there's still plenty of that around today, um, even in our supposedly secular scientific age. Um, You may have heard the BBC commentary during the England-Germany match last week when some of the commentators were arguing because one of them said something that might tempt fate, um, as if what they said in the commentary box might somehow affect and impact the outcome of the match. There's superstition everywhere. On the one hand, people think that they lead their own lives, they talk like they do, that they're the ones driving it. But on the other hand, people just can't escape this nagging feeling that their lives are part of someone else's world, that everything is connected somehow, that there's a greater reality behind what we can see. Some of my most ardent atheist friends still knock on wood. Why? Well, Scripture provides a reason for that. For example, Paul in Romans chapter 1 speaks about people suppressing what God has revealed. And so people sort of know, and yet they don't know. People sort of see, and yet they don't see. At the very same time, people have a sense of God, and yet push him away. Anyway, Jesus dismisses that proposal of the disciples about the cause of this man's blindness. Verse 3, he says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. In case you're wondering, that's not a denial of their sin generally, nor of sin's consequences in the world. Suffering is the result of sin, of Adam's sin, of our sin collectively as we've pushed God away since that day in the garden. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that his blindness is not the result of a particular sin on his or his parents' part. Now, Jesus could have stopped there. The rest of the first two could have read. The disciples replied, oh, okay, fair enough. And Jesus and his disciples continued on their way. End of chapter nine. But Jesus doesn't stop there. There's a lot more to come. He explains that this man is blind for another reason than simply the brokenness of our fallen world. Verse three, he says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, God did this. The man's blindness was part of the plan of God. I wonder what you think of that, how you feel about that, that his blindness was brought about by God. Understandably, it might throw up some questions for you. If so, I hope this exploration through John 9 over the next three Sundays will help you see things in new ways, even within, in different ways. Because this man's story will play an integral role in the display of God's good plans and purposes for people, even in our suffering. And you know, that begins in verse one, even before the miracle takes place. Just consider the fact that Jesus focuses on, of all people, a man born blind. What does that show us about Jesus? Perhaps that he's not after perfect specimens? The man is needy, helpless, hopeless. His life consisted of sitting by a roadside and begging. He had no job prospects, no future. He was at the very bottom of the social ladder. He has nothing to offer Jesus. He doesn't even know Jesus is there. And yet Jesus comes by, sets his sights on him. And while the disciples speculate, Jesus prepares to do something incredible in him and through him. A nameless blind man who has shown no real attention or sympathy by the twelve or by anyone else is about to become living proof of God doing only what God can do in needy, helpless, hopeless people. Through him, we're going to see the mission of God on display. That's why in verse 4, Jesus says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work i.e. Jesus Christ, the Son incarnate, has been sent for a purpose. He's on a mission. He's been sent by the Father to fulfill God's glorious plans in the world, and now is the time. Verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's the headline of this chapter, and it's been the theme of uh, it's been a theme through God's, John's gospel as we've, as we've ventured through all the way. Jesus is the light of the world who's come to give sight to those who cannot see. But how does this mission affect us? I've been enjoying some um, late evening walks of late and taking the occasional walk at about 9 p.m. And I usually walk through the, the fields out by Hanwell. And on a clear evening, it's, it's stunning, it's beautiful, it's cool, peaceful, quiet, and the evening light is, is just wonderful. But as it gets dark towards about 10 p.m., I have to admit, I up my pace a little bit. Now, you might be different, but my heart races when it's dark and I'm on my own late at night, because at the end of my walk, um, I go through a long passage of, of woodland, and if I leave it too late, I feel a bit trapped, helpless, vulnerable. Might sound silly, but as we all know, bad things do happen in the dark. The same is true in Scripture, where the terms darkness or night or blindness are evocative concepts. They're often used to refer to spiritual darkness, describing what life is like without God. Darkness, the absence of light, is another way of describing sin. And so here's the point. In his blindness, the unnamed man is a picture of each one of us. He represents humanity in all its need. He's a portrait of us who are by nature blind towards God. We live in the dark. And like the blind man, we are incapable of reversing that condition ourselves. So when Jesus describes himself as the light of the world, what he's declaring is that he's the one who can bring light into that darkness. But of course, this is more than just a metaphor. In referring to himself as the light, Jesus identifies himself as the one through whom creation was formed when God spoke and light came into existence. When everything was empty and formless and void, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Life-giving light. So that brings us next to the miracle itself. Just look at what Jesus does in verse 6. After saying this, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Let me just say that again. Jesus spat on the ground rubbed his saliva in the mud making a sort of gooey putty he scooped it up and he rubbed it all over the man's face now would any of the children like to come up and demonstrate that with their saliva this morning Steve could I ask you to um, play the part of the blind man no I'm just kidding we'll do that after the 19th of July (laughs) now why did Jesus do that Surely he didn't have to. When he turned water into wine in John chapter two, he didn't spit into the water jars. When he healed the paralyzed man in chapter five, he did so with a word, not with saliva. So why? Well, is this not a picture of the creator interacting with his creation? His saliva doesn't have magical properties. Rather, this is a depiction of creation. When the Lord God formed man out of the dust, the ground, in Genesis 2. So Jesus gives this man sight like a a potter just working his clay. Remember, the man was born blind. This isn't some medicine. This isn't just a restorative act. This is a creative act out of nothing. But here, there's another surprise because the man doesn't see straight away. Jesus sends him to go and wash first, which again is different to the paralyzed man in chapter five with, with the pool. With that guy, Jesus just spoke and the man was healed. He didn't need the water. Jesus didn't send him into the pool at that point. So what's different about this guy, this man born blind? Well, it's not that he's any different or that the water has special power. What's different is what Jesus is teaching them and us through this miracle. Did you notice how the one sent by the Father sends the man to a pool called sent? Isn't that striking? What does it mean? Why the wait? Where did he go? Where did Jesus go after verse seven? He, He disappears here and doesn't reappear until the end of the chapter. Why isn't he with the man? when he's subsequently questioned by his neighbors and then the Pharisees? Well, we're going to explore all all of that next week. In between now and then, just ponder it. Keep asking those questions. There's a little teaser of what's to come. For now, let's just briefly consider the immediate aftermath of the miracle on the man. Verse 7. So the man went and washed and came home sing. Can you just imagine what it must have been like as that man, you know, came up through the water? What must have been happening in his brain as he, uh, in his brain, as he tried to process the spectrum of colors and movements and shapes all around him, as he wandered around and saw smiles and flowers and the city, the sky? He must have felt alive And you know, that's exactly what the light of the world does for people when he sets his sight on them. He opens our eyes that we might truly see. In his light, we see light. The eternal creator moves towards us in our finitude. He's not defeated by our helplessness. He's not offended by our hopelessness. The infinite God is now intimate with us. I hope that's an encouragement to you. It's been to me over a tough few months. If you are feeling defeated, deflated, tired, not sure how you're going to keep going, that is not a bad place to be, because in that place you're ready to receive the grace and mercy of Christ. If you've got disappointments, failures, unanswered questions, you're feeling unwanted, uncared for, don't despair. Jesus sees you, and you're in the perfect place for him to display his grace in and through you. If you've begun to see that you're not really in command of your life, whether through circumstances you can't manage, like lifelong or, or life-affecting uh, illness, or separation, or through sin that seems beyond your control, well, it's there in the shadows that Jesus brings his life and light. If, on the other hand, you're only here because you want a boost of Jesus, something to enhance your faith or pump up your knowledge and self-confidence, but not because you need Jesus, then I'm afraid you don't understand him. The blind man will have much, much more to face, and it's not going to be easy. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only just looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. Seemingly, Jesus won't be there to defend him and vindicate him when he's put on trial, as it were, by his neighbors and later the Pharisees. And, and the man doesn't have all the answers. Just listen to verse 10. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. All he knows is that he was blind and now he sees that Jesus, the man they call Jesus, searched for him and enabled him to see. And as we will see as we continue through John chapter 9, that will change everything for him. And I pray and hope everything for us as well. For now, let's
1: close in prayer. Our Lord. to see the depths of our darkness, but also the beauty, draw us even closer to your goodness and the
0: life we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.